Well, good morning. How y'all doing today? Well, first off, I want to say welcome to anybody joining us here in our room this morning for the first time, or if you're joining us online for the first time, we want to say welcome to you. We're so glad you're here to worship with us here at Hosanna. If you don't know who I am, I am Pastor Nathan, and this morning we're going to be learning from the letter of 2 Peter, how to know the Bible is true. This isn't an exhaustive apologetic on this. We're going to be looking specifically at what Peter has to say in determining that. But, you know, as I was looking at this, I was reflecting on uh, the time of growing up as a kid. And my parents used to tell me, don't believe everything you see on TV, right? Do you ever tell that to your kids? Don't believe everything you hear on the radio or everything you read in a newspaper or magazine. Then our world changed and technology came onto the scene and it became don't believe everything you see, hear, or read on the internet. Then social media came on the scene and, and that just really messed up a whole lot of stuff. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of people still in today's world that, that faithfully believe the narratives that they see on things like social media. They faithfully believe the narratives of famous influencers and they aspire to the pleasures and the comforts and the fame and the success that they see there. And, and sometimes they look at this stuff and they go, you know, if I could only have that, if I could only be that, um, then I'll be happy. All the while knowing that it's all Photoshopped, <laughs> you know, that only the best takes are what end up online, the best shots, right? However, in today's culture, as of 2022, there is a great shift um, especially among the young people in regards to things like social media and what they see online. You know, when they look at the, the millennial and the Gen Z generations, and for those of you that don't know, the millennial generation right now is said to be between the ages of 26 and 41, and Gen Z is between the ages of 10 to 25, and of course these, you know, fluctuate a little bit. But there was a study done, and they asked them questions like, would you be physically healthier if you reduced your social media consumption? 64% of the millennials and 63% of Gen Z said they would be. Would you be happier if you reduced your social media con or consumption? 60% of millennials said yes, 59% of Gen Z said yes. And then the last question they asked on this part of the survey was, so, is social media causing more harm than good in the world today? 55% of millennials said yes, 54% of Gen Z said yes. And the reality is, is <clears throat> they don't trust it. And a lot of us, it's not just limited to the millennial and the Gen Z generation. It's a lot of what we see online, a lot of what is presented to the world is, is not trusted much anymore. You know, we live in a culture today where because of the ease of access to the great worldwide database and encyclopedia called the internet, that fact-checking, instant fact-checking is a norm. Somebody says something uh, in an interview or somewhere, and you could look that up real quick and find out if it's true or not. And because so much, so consistently, for so long, has been presented or represented inaccurately, deceptively, or outright falsely, the younger generations just absolutely distrust. Distrust experts and those who claim to have authority in general. And they distrust them more than ever before. And I bring this up because I was looking at some surveys that have been done recently on things like truth. And in this study, what they found out is in the millennial and Gen Z generation, and they were primarily focused on the younger generations in the survey. That's why I keep bringing those two up. They found that they lack trust overall in just about all traditional institutions. 
In this survey, they found that 26% of millennials and 24% of Gen Z have zero trust. Not some trust, not kind of trust, zero trust in companies, bosses, and employers. And young people today in this survey, what they found is that in that 26 and 24%, they believe that 100% of the time, companies will actively and intentionally do everything they can to not pay them more, even when profits are up, even when the employee's efforts are a direct cause of those profits increasing. And they believe that 100% of the time, the companies will intentionally not pay them more even when things like performance are taken into effect, cost of living, inflation, and all of that. They found that 27% of millennials and 30% of Gen Z have zero trust in the news and traditional media, regardless of its bent. They found that 45% of millennials and 41% of Gen Z have zero trust in political leaders, regardless of their party affiliation. And this is the one that really hit my heart. In this survey, 45% of millennials and 49% of Gen Z said they have zero trust in religious leaders of any kind. You know, people in our world today struggle more and more with believing the truth of things. And a lot of that is because they, don't, they struggle with believing the truth of things that don't fit into their own human experience. They struggle believing the truth of things that, that aren't independently verifiable by them. It's a, it's a war on truth in our world today. Another survey asked, is there such a thing as absolute truth? Only 20, 28% of the respondents said, yes, there is such a thing as absolute truth. Now, that doesn't really bother me, right? I, you know, the world out there believes in moral relativism and, you know, and all this type of stuff. But what's most concerning is that in this particular survey, only 23% of the people that said they are believing born-again Christians, only 23% said, yes, there is such a thing as absolute truth. What that meant is over 75% of the professing Christians in that survey believe that nothing is absolutely true, nothing can be known for certain. And my question for the people in that survey would be, and if you fall into that camp here in this room this morning, my question would be, then what do you do with the claims of Christ? What do you do with the claims of Jesus? Because he made some pretty absolute claims. Pretty absolute claims. And, and are they not true? Because you don't believe that absolute truth is such a thing that exists? You know, and then, you know, ironically, the statement of, you know, isn't saying there is no absolute truth an absolute statement? <laughs> so that is your statement inherently false, you know, but we're not going to get into that this morning. But the Bible makes so many truth claims, and many of those claims are, well, to be direct, absolute, right? Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Well, how can we know that's true? How can we know that absolute statement is absolutely true? This is what Peter addresses in the text we're looking at this morning in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. That's where we'll be this morning in our study. But first, let's start by worshiping the God of all truth. The truth, right? Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior. The only way, the only truth, and the only life. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, so much for who you are. God, we know we live in a world today where truth 
is under attack. And it's not a new thing, Lord. Truth has always been under attack. But Lord, as we look at statistics, Lord, and we know even statistics can be untrue to a degree, Lord, but looking at the numbers of, of people, especially young people in our world today that, that say, I don't trust religious leaders at all. Nothing they say, I don't trust anything about them. Lord, it's alarming. And God, yet the number of people that are in the world that say nothing is absolute and there is no absolute truth, that is alarming, Lord, because your word has so many absolute claims. And so God, this morning, as we look at what Peter had to say to the people he was writing to, Lord, those that were struggling in a world of persecution and a world that was coming against them for their faith, Lord, as they were being tempted to possibly think, you know, is, is what I believe true? Is this Bible stuff true? Is what the, 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 the scriptures say true, God? That we today would receive the lessons, the encouragement, the instruction from Peter that you had for them back then, Lord. And that we would understand that it's both through our personal experience, which is subjective, and the provable prophetic word of God, which is objective, Lord. We know and we can have confidence in the truth of what we believe. But Lord, right now, we just want to worship your name. We want to praise your name because, God, you are holy. You are almighty. You are worthy. And, God, we know you are true. And so, Lord, we want to bless you this morning in our worship, and we ask that you would bless us and speak to us through your word later on. We love you so much. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so uh, we're going to be in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21 this morning. And uh, just to kind of recap the setting of, of this letter, you know, when this letter reached its readers, it was just a few years after his first letter, but persecution uh, on the church was, was at its peak. Christians were losing their jobs, they were losing their businesses, they were being arrested and killed for their faith in Jesus. It was a difficult time. And so Peter, here writing this second letter, um, he's writing towards the end of his own life. Uh, on Wednesday, we looked at verses 12 through 15. And where he was saying, like, look, guys, I, I, I want to tell you some very important things, some very important life-changing, forever-affecting truths that you really need to know. And so in verse 15, he said, I'm going to make every effort so that you will be able to recall these things after he departs. And he was speaking of his own death. Now, <clears throat> if you go through the, the letter of Second Peter, you'll notice a familiar word um, is used often. It's the word no or its variation, knowledge. These two words are used uh, a lot through 2 Peter, and they're really some of the key words, the key concepts that 2 Peter is all about, that we would know the truth. In chapter one, verse two, he opened the letter by saying, may grace and peace be multiplied to you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. In verses five through six, he said, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness, Goodness with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, and so on. And then in verse 8, he said, For if you possess these qualities in increasing, increasing measure, they will keep you from being useless or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, knowing the truth is important. <clears throat> knowing that it's true is important. Because it guides our lives, it guides our walks, it guides uh, everything that we do. And so verse 12, just as a, as a recap, he said, I will always remind you about these things, even though you know them. Even though you know them. <clears throat> and these things is, is the things he's been teaching them about the Lord, about faith, about all of that, you know. And a good teacher will do that. Will remind you of things even though you already know them. 
Any good teacher will do that. It's called repetition, right? Repetition, you know, and so anytime you're in a Bible study and you think, oh, I've heard this before, good, good. You need to hear it again, all right? Um, Jesus would often repeat himself in his parables. He would repeat himself in his uh, sermons. Solomon did this. You go through the book of Proverbs over and over and over. He's repeating often uh, very similar things. David did this in the Psalms, repeating these themes. And, and it, it's these themes, these ideas that get repeated over and over. And the reason is, is to drill the knowledge down into our being. And the reason that's important is because uh, we forget, right? How many of you forget? Right? We all forget stuff. We forget things we know. We forget where we put our keys, you know? I clip mine onto my belt. And sometimes I'm like, where are my keys? as they're jingle jangling on my belt, you know? We forget things. I've been into studies this week, obviously, from the intro, so I read another study, okay? <clears throat> and it said that the average person only retains 25% of what they hear in a Bible study. 25%. Little disconcerting for those of you that are teachers, right? <laughs> you know? But still, 25% is, is on average. And that, what they found in the study, is if you're focused in on it, you're not on your phone, you're not doing something else, but if you're focused in and paying attention, on average, you'll retain 25%. A parallel study that was done with this said that the 25% is only reached when you hear the message twice. You have to hear the whole message twice to retain 25%. And so, you know, praise God that in the past we had cassette tapes. Some of you were like, what's that, you know? It's an ancient technology. And then there was CDs. Some of you are going, what's that? That's another ancient technology, right? Um, and, and praise God for those things, you know, because we were able to, you know, put the audio down and so you could get it and listen to it again. And then, of course, today we have podcasts where you could hear the audio over and over. But in the same study, they found that retention goes up to 45% if you both hear it and see it. And so, obviously, when you're here in the room and we're, we're, we're attentively listening, you, you, you see the speaker teaching, Right, but you know, that just made me think, praise God for, for us being able to archive the video of our studies and live stream and keep the videos online so people can go back and both hear and see it again. And Peter, in these verses, he's gonna be demonstrating the power of what both seeing and hearing does and how that bolsters our confidence in the truth that we believe. But what this, this is what they found out in the, in the study as well. Retention goes up to 70% if you see it and hear it and do it. And that's why we talk about application so much, right? Go live what you're learning. You know, it's one of the reasons why I'm so excited this summer we're going to be launching our community groups. Talked about it in the beginning of the year that we've been working to put together a, a small group ministry here at Hosanna. And so excited about that. You know, one of the reasons I'm super excited about that is because it's in a small group where, where you get to interact over the truths that we're learning congregationally you get to have back and forth discussion on those things, and, and in all of that, it, it gets to be reinforced. You get to live those truths together in a, in a small group, in that more intimate um, um, community, and, and thus, hopefully, the prayer is that, that you then retain the things we're learning better, right? That's why I'm so excited about our small groups. We'll be talking more about that in the coming weeks. But it was important. It was important for the people Peter was writing to and it was important to Peter that they had this knowledge, that they knew this knowledge. And, and there's a reason he gets into in chapter two, we'll be picking that up uh, next time, but there was false prophets, there were false teachers in the church that were coming and teaching false things, right? False doctrines. 
And there was all kinds of different false teachers coming into the church, but one of the ones that is specifically uh, uh, um, that we know about were these people called the Gnostics. And the Gnostics were coming into the church, and the Gnostics were people that were in the know. They, they were the ones that said, we have special knowledge about God. We have a special revelation about God. And so, so we have knowledge that you don't have, poor, simple people, because, of course, we're the, we're the ones that are in the know. And so they, they, they denied the claims of Christ because, you know, obviously we have a, a new revelation. They, they, they denied the coming of Christ, which Peter's going to speak out in a little bit. And really what they were doing in, in and there's other letters that talk about this as they were making up stories, making up fables, making up myths, and trying to say these are the important things about God. Well, Peter counteracts this by saying three things in the verses we're looking at this morning. Peter says, I know that what I've taught you is true because of what I've seen, because of what I've heard, and because of what I've read. These three evidences he gives out there are very powerful in proving that the Bible and what it teaches, its claims are true and trustworthy in what it says and what it encourages us to be and how to live. But all of this boils down into two real broad categories. One, Peter highlights his personal experience, how, how the truth of God has changed his life, what he saw, what he experienced. And that's the subjective um, evidence that he, he provides. And subjective means it's subjective. It's like, okay, that's what you experienced, but that may not be what I experienced, right? But then he also gives scriptural evidence, which is the objective evidence, right? Two plus two equals four. That's an objective truth. And you might go, I don't feel like it. So what? Two plus two doesn't care. It's objective. It's not based upon your experience or your feeling. So let's pick it up in verse 16. And we start with the first part of Peter's uh, personal experience, what he saw. Verse 16, 2 Peter 1. He says, For we did not follow cleverly contrived myths, when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now that word myths he uses there, he's referring to these stories that these false teachers were trying to bring in. And that word myths literally means a story that narrates a non-historical chain of events. Non-historical, non-verifiable, non-provable. Right? It's a Greek word that was always used in the New Testament in a negative way. It was very often used to refer to pagan mythology. And if you're at all familiar with Greek myths, pretty wild, pretty radical, pretty bizarre. And really, they're tales without any real historical verifiability. One of them is the story of Icarus. Right? He was the kid that tried to escape Crete by, mean, by means of wings that were built by his dad made of, made of feathers and wax. And his dad said, don't fly too close to the sun because then the wax will melt and you'll die. And the kid was like, I'm going to do it anyways. And, and he flew too close to the sun, the wax melted, and he fell in the sea and drowned. Pretty fantastic story. You have the story of Pandora, right? She opened this little box that she had and all the evil of the world jumped out of it. You have the story of Medusa. You know, originally Medusa, is said, was, a, was a, a woman with beautiful golden hair, and she fell in love with Poseidon, the god of the sea. And so Athena was mad at her and cursed her for it. And so from the point of that curse, instead of growing her beautiful golden hair, snakes grew out of her head. Fantastic stories, myths. No truth to them. No historical verifiability. Stories in the Bible, however, 
The stuff that the Bible talks about, it's based on historical places. It's based on actual people. Very often throughout Bible, particular specific dates are given of things. And this has led to so many archaeological discoveries over the years where the Bible said there used to be a city here and someone shows up and goes, there's no city here, but they dig and hey, there's a city right where the Bible said it would be. It's happened over and over at one point. People said the Bible can't possibly be true because it speaks of this great nation of people called the Hittites and there is no evidence that a people called the Hittites ever existed. And then guess what? They discovered evidence that a people called the Hittites existed now. And there's so much evidence for it that that in some secular colleges, not Christian colleges, secular colleges, you can actually get a degree in Hittite studies. That's how much evidence they've found that these people existed. So much of the Bible has been verified and discovered and proven to be true or accurate that it lends tremendous credibility to, to any parts of the Bible that we haven't yet been able to verify with evidence. It says if, if, if this is all true, it lends credibility that all of it must be true. The Bible isn't a set of cleverly contrived myths. But Peter, he appeals to his own personal experience here in trying to say to them, look, I want you to know these things are true, and I want you to know the truth of them. And he appeals to his own eyewitness account, that which he has seen with his own eyes. He said, look, that which I've made known to you. And what was it that he made known to the people? He specifically mentions the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. The event he's referring to here is the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. Because in verse 18, he talks about what we, what we heard up on the holy mountain. And he's referring to the transfiguration. The transfiguration you could read about in Matthew chapter 17. But it was this moment where Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on this mountain. And he was transfigured. He was transformed right before their very eyes. His face, it says, was glowing like the sun. His clothes were dazzling white. And then he was, they, were, they were seeing him with their own eyes in his, in his glory to come, his glorified form, if you will. And in that transfiguration, transfiguration, two other men from the past showed up, Moses and Elijah showed up, and we're having a conversation with Jesus, and Peter saw that with his own eyes, and, he, and he's telling them that here. Look, I was an eyewitness to this. I've told you about the power of God, the power of Jesus, and I've told you about the coming of Jesus, that he's coming again, and I know it's true because I saw him transfigured before my very eyes. Peter was overwhelmed by what he saw, and you know, when Peter was overwhelmed, it it wasn't always a good thing because an overwhelmed Peter was a Peter who started talking. And when Peter would start talking, (laughs) often he would say some really silly things right? Well, in Matthew chapter 17, verse 4, it says, then Peter said to Jesus, right? I'm seeing this divine miracle happen in front of me. Lord, it is good for us to be here. Uh, duh. Thanks for that, Captain Obvious, right? But then it goes, if you want, I will set up three shelters here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now this is what I love about this verse. Verse five. While he was still speaking, 
Suddenly a bright cloud covered them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. While he was still speaking, Peter's like, Lord, it is good for us to be here. Let me build you guys some houses. And then God the Father's like, is it, is it, Peter, listen to Jesus, okay? Just, 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 just partake of what God is doing here and listen to Jesus. But Peter saw this event with his own eyes. And in those days and today, in a court of law, eyewitness accounts are, are, are very important and very crucial in proving something to be true. Eyewitness accounts. And Peter's like, I was there. I saw this in, in what I've been telling you. I, I, I shared with you guys what I've been telling you, this, this preview of the second coming of Christ. I've been telling you, you know, First Peter, all the way through that letter we talked about. It. He's like, look, I know it's tough. Heaven's coming. I know it's tough. Glory's ahead of you. And he's like, and I know that's true because I saw a preview of the second coming of Christ. When he says the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus, that word coming there is parousia. That word is almost always used in the Bible to refer to the second coming of Jesus Christ. He saw Jesus in his glory. And so Peter's like, look, I was there. I saw Jesus in his glory to come, and I know it's true because I saw it with my own eyes. Now, verse 17, he moves on to not just what he saw, but what he heard. Verse 17, he says, For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. Now, this phrase here, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, God the Father said this to Jesus twice in his ministry. The first time, if you remember, was at his baptism, right? When Jesus went to John the Baptist, got baptized, the Holy Spirit came upon him, and the voice from heaven said these exact same words. The second time is here at the transfiguration, and you could read that in Matthew 17, 5. But Peter's like, look, I didn't just see something. I heard something as well. I heard the voice of God. Now, when a single individual says, I heard and I saw this or that. It can be easy to dismiss, right? I think all of us have, from time to time, had people, oh, I, I saw this, I heard this, and, and you're like, come on, is that really true? You know, it, it's easy to dismiss. And of course, in our modern medical science, there's, there's a lot of diagnosable reasons that people have what's called hallucinations, right? People could have, you know, mental illness, they could have some type of brain damage, drug abuse. Those things can, can mess with the brain and, and, and cause people to have hallucinations. They see things that aren't really there. They hear things that aren't really there. They, they can feel things that don't really happen to them. But Peter clarifies, I wasn't by myself when this happened. It wasn't just me. He says in verse 18, we ourselves heard this voice. Peter's saying, look, it wasn't just me, but James and John were there with me as well, and they saw the exact same thing I saw, and they heard the exact same thing I heard. You know, and the more people that you have 
hear and see the exact same thing, the more people that, that, that hear and see the exact same thing increases the likelihood of it really happened. That's why multiple witnesses is really powerful in the events where you're trying to establish something. To say you didn't really see that, you didn't really, the, 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 the chances of being able to say it's fabricated diminish greatly the more witnesses you have. And this is important because there are those in the world today that accuse the New Testament writers of just simply having hallucinations. This is especially true when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus. They, they were just having hallucinations, right? You know, even though there was over 500 eyewitnesses, they, they were just having hallucinations. They, Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. The problem is modern mental science largely, predominantly knows and says that mass hallucinations do not happen. Mass hallucinations do not happen. Now, the closest thing that, that might look like a mass hallucination, because sometimes there are groups of people, something happens, and they all have an experience at the same time, but the problem is, is in order for these, these, these shared experiences to happen, and this is according to, to modern psychology, is that there, there, there's a very, very rare and specific set of circumstances that, that then qualify for what would almost look like a mass hallucination. But even when that happens, no two people hear and see exactly the same thing. There's always differences and variations. And then on top of that, Peter, James, and John, they don't simply fit the profile of the type of people that we know today are psychologically prone to hallucinations. And so I'm pointing all that out because to say like, you know, hey, I saw and heard something, psh, just completely dismiss all that. If it was just Peter, it might be easy to dismiss. But he's going, no, 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 there's two other people there with me, witnesses that heard and saw the same exact thing. That matters. John in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 said this, and he was speaking of Jesus. He goes, what was from the beginning? What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that life was revealed, and we have seen it, and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. And he goes on to talk about, he's like, I'm talking about Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses. We saw his works. We heard his words. We saw withered limbs healed. We saw the dead come back to life. We saw leprosy disappear right before our eyes on the skins of people that were infected. We heard his parables. We heard his words. We heard his teachings and observed the effect that those things had on the lives of the people that heard them. But still, but still there's a problem with personal experiences and that's that they're personal experiences. They're subjective. They're subjective to anyone who didn't have that personal experience. And the common objection to personal experience, regardless of how many people saw it, is people go, you know, you know people claim to see and hear things all the time. And, and, and then on top of that, you know, today, today's culture, there's a, there's a popular concept that truth is relative, right? You live your truth, I'll live my truth. You do you, I'll do me. My personal experience is very different from yours, and so my truth can, is different than yours. 
And many would say in the world today that personal experience alone is not enough to establish the validity of something being true. And, and there's, there's an element of truth to that statement because personal experience is indeed subjective. But when enough people have the same personal experience from something, it, 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 it starts to become more credible and verifiable. Not just hearing and seeing something, but when their lives are similarly changed by a truth that is, that is proclaimed. When we look at the apostles and their lives, and then we look beyond the apostles, and we look at, at church and the people in church down through history who have all had a similar experience after inviting Christ into their lives to be their Lord and Savior, have had a common salvation experience, and their lives have been radically changed, and their hearts changed, and their thinking has changed, and their behavior has changed, and then, then that those people come to experience peace and joy and love in a way maybe they never have before, it says something. It says something, and all the disciples were radically changed. And one of the strongest evidences to the life-changing claims of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the truth of what God's word says is that every single one of the disciples, except for Judas, went to a martyr's death because of what their testimony said about what they saw and heard. If they knew it was a lie, they would not have gone to the deaths they went to. They were horrible, they were gruesome. And yet every single one of them went to death to defend what they saw and heard. But again, Peter doesn't just stop with the subjective evidence here because he knew it wouldn't be enough on its own. And so he goes on in verse 19 to give the second evidence that what he's been sharing with them, what he's taught them is true, what, what, what the experience lines up with. I experienced this and it lines up with what the word of God said. He says, look, you don't have to trust my subjective personal experience because the word of God is objectively provable. Verse 19, he says, we also have the prophetic word strongly confirmed. We have the prophetic word strongly confirmed. You know, prophecy is one of the most powerful proofs that the Bible is trustworthy and that what it claims is true. Prophecy, one of the most powerful proofs you know, the Bible is filled with hundreds of, of specific, detailed prophecies about things, people, places, events, many of which have, have already come to pass exactly as prophesied. And that's an important point because today you might go, well, there's mediums and psychics and everything out there. It, the counterfeits are always vague, Right? My, my, when I was a kid, my mom like, really, really used to like those shows with the mediums. Right? We used to watch them. They were really popular in the early 2000s. And we'd sit and watch these guys, and they'd be like, okay, all right, someone here knew someone with the letter S in their name. <gasps> you. Okay. Uh, did you ever have a relative that died? <gasps> I did. And, and, and they're really skilled at starting broad and then kind of drilling down through your responses into details things. And, and then eventually it appears like, oh my gosh, my uncle Sam is speaking to me right now. And they're charlatans. They start broad. Scripture often just starts right away with very specific details, things that could be verified, verified. And so the Old Testament as an example, completed 400 years before Jesus was ever born, has over 300 specific prophecies about the coming Messiah. And they were fulfilled, a lot of them were fulfilled 
in the life of Jesus during his life here. And I just want to name a few of them for you, right? In Genesis 12, it said that the Messiah would be born of the seed of Abraham, fulfilled in Jesus. Genesis 49, that the Messiah would be born from the tribe of Judah, fulfilled in Jesus. 2 Samuel 7, that the Messiah would be born in the lineage of King David, fulfilled in Jesus. Micah 5.2, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, fulfilled in Jesus. Isaiah chapter 7, that the Messiah would be born to a virgin. That's pretty specific. Fulfilled in Jesus. Malachi chapter 3, that he would come onto the scene while the temple was still standing. Fulfilled in Jesus. Isaiah 35, that he would heal the blind, the deaf, and the lame. Fulfilled in Jesus. Psalms 118, that he would be rejected by his own people. Daniel 9 gives us the precise time in history that he would show up. Zechariah 9 says that he would show up riding on a donkey. And then in Psalms 22, it says how the Messiah would die long before the method of crucifixion to kill someone was even invented. That's just a few. Very specific. He wouldn't just show up on a beast of burden not just on a donkey, but on a young donkey. Very specific. The Old Testament has hundreds of other prophecies concerning the rise and fall of nations and and, and, and other matters. An example of that is in Isaiah chapter 45. It was predicted that the temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed a hundred years before it happened. In that same chapter, the prophet Isaiah predicts that a man named Cyrus, who would be king, Cyrus the king, would come and, and, and be instrumental in rebuilding the temple. When he wrote that, Cyrus hadn't even been born yet, much less made king. Not only was he not born, he wasn't even a thought in the mind because Isaiah wrote this 160 years before Cyrus even came onto the scene. And yet in his prophecy, his exact name, Cyrus the king, was written down and prophesied that he would come and he was indeed the one who gave the orders to go back and rebuild. Pretty specific. Now, some people go, well, don't other holy books claim to be the word of God, right? You're saying the Bible's the word of God and and prophecy. Don't other books claim that? Yeah, there are. There's about 25 other books in the world today that claim to be the word of God. 25 other books. But guess what is missing from every single one of them? Fulfilled prophecy. The Bible that you have in your hand or on your phone, in your app, wherever you got it, is the only book in the world today that claims to be the word of God that has fulfilled, documented, fulfilled prophecy within it. That's a pretty big deal. If there was another holy book out there that said, well, it kind of has half fulfilled prophecies, maybe you can argue that point, but none, zero. And the Bible's loaded with it. And then people go, well, how do we know the Bible wasn't written after the event, right? How do we know the Bible wasn't written after and then claims to be prophetic? Well, you have in the world today things like the Dead Sea Scrolls. The actual real ones still exist. There have been many forgeries of the Dead Sea Scrolls bought and sold, and most recently there was a forgery that was in the uh, museum back east and stuff. But the actual real Dead Sea Scrolls, they really do exist, really have been looked at and examined. And plus, there's thousands of other manuscripts. And when you put all this stuff together, what they, what they tell us is that the Old Testament we have today, the Old Testament that we have in our hands and what it says is exactly what it was 2,000 years ago. 
oh, it's been retranslated and changed. Okay, well, let's line it up to what existed 2,000 years ago. It says the same exact thing. And more important is that as they were dating these, these Dead Sea Scrolls to find out when were they were written, many of these scrolls were written before Jesus was even on the scene, before Jesus was even born. So there's no possible way that these prophecies could have been written after Jesus' time. And yet we still have all these prophecies fulfilled in Christ. And I think that's just an important fact to understand because one other recent study <laughs> Recent studies said four out of ten Americans believe that the Bible as a whole was written decades after Jesus died. Four out of ten. Now, if they just spend two seconds in study, they would find that that's not true, but, but they don't. They just they hear things, they go, oh, it's just, it was written after the fact. However, the Bible confirms what it says over and over. It's provable of when and how and in the times that it came from. And Peter's like, look, I know what I saw. I know what I heard. I know what I've read. And what I read prophesied a Messiah coming. And I saw him. And I saw him in his glory. And I heard the word of the Lord. Now verse 19, he goes on to say, and you will do well to pay attention to it. As to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Right? Because the Bible is provably trustworthy, because we have personal experience with what it said would happen when we interacted with it the way it, it tells us to, to believe in Christ and to accept him, and, and we have personal experience of that happening in our life, and because we have prophecy and all that stuff, he goes, so pay attention to it. Right? If you're a baseball fan, if a baseball player gets up and bats a thousand, that means that every single time they go up to hit the ball, they hit the ball. Every single time. Do you know how impossible that is? The highest paid baseball players in the world, the highest, the, the, the best of the best, maybe three out of seven or three out of ten times. They miss seven times, and oh, you are the most expert professional in this thing. But imagine if a bat batter got up there and hit, batted a thousand. Wouldn't it be foolish to wonder, hey, they bat a thousand, they've always batted a thousand, but they get up into the plate and you go, oh, I'm gonna, I wonder if they're going to miss this time. They still bat a thousand, still bat. Now, maybe, maybe the first handful of times, you know, wow, they're on a streak. They've three for three, and four for four, and five for five. But Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds times later, pretty soon it would be foolish to be like, oh, they're going to miss? It's like, no, they're batting a thousand. If the word of God has been right over and over and over again prophetically, and the personal experience of thousands over the centuries in different places, different times, different cultures line up with its claims, stop doubting whether it's true or not. Stop doubting whether it's true or not. What it says about your life in the past, what it says about your life now, and what it says about your life in the future are true. You can count on it. You can trust it. And that's why he uses this phrase, uh, the lamp in the dark place, right? Psalm 119, 105, it says, your word is a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. It's the word of God that illuminates the path so we can live our life. 
righteously good in a way that, that just glorifies God, you know, and it's not perfect. We stumble, we fall, and we get up and we say, God, I'm sorry, forgive me, and he's like, let's keep going. Matthew, quoting Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he was describing what was happening this way. In Matthew 4, 16, he said, the people who live in darkness have seen a great light. And for those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. This is what Peter is saying here when he says, look, as to a lamp, pay attention to it as to a lamp shining in the dark place until the day dawns. Let it guide your life. Let it direct your life. Let let it inform your life. Let it govern your decisions. Why? Because it's true. And when it says, look, if you walk in disobedience and you sin, consequences are gonna happen, it's true. When it says, Walk in obedience and, 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 and honor the Lord and, and, and you'll have peace and joy. You'll be blessed. It doesn't mean everything will be perfect and easy, but, but you'll, you'll, you'll have the satisfaction. It happens because it's true. Because we have the confirmed prophetic word and our experience lines up with what that word says, we live in expectant hope of the truth of what it says will come, will come. And this is why Peter has been hammering this thing. Look, heaven's coming. Glory's coming. The end of persecution's coming. Just you can endure because, because it, it's coming. And he's so convinced because he saw it, he heard it, and the word of God confirmed it. So Peter's like, look, pay attention to the prophetic word in this dark place. What dark place? This world. This dark place we live in. This world that is, that, is, that is consumed with its own desires and its own pleasures and its own everything. Pay attention to the word of God. This is why it bummed me out so much. And I opened with some of those stats where 49% of, of people between the ages of 10 and 25 have zero trust in any religious leader. So many people who, who stand to proclaim the word of God have twisted it and lied about it and misrepresented it and it just breaks my heart. Half, half. Zero, per, zero trust. And, 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 and we, as, as individual believers, we, we should be people whose lives are lived in such a way where it garners trust. You know, when I was growing up, my biggest objection to Christianity was Christians. People tell me, oh, you need Jesus, you need Jesus. I'm like, you need Jesus. We got drunk at the same party last Saturday. <laughs> Yeah, but it doesn't mean that we're perfect, but, but, but we strive to live in obedience and live in a way that, that, that reflects God appropriately, that, that our witness is, 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 is secure. So Peter's like, pay attention to this word in this dark place we live in until the day dawns and the morning star rises. And that's simply referring, I believe, to the second coming of Christ that time when all spiritual, social, political, moral darkness will give away to a brighter day because Jesus will be on the scene. And that, that phrase, morning star, Jesus used it to refer to himself. And, and in the time, they actually would, the Greek word actually referred to Venus. Like there was the planet Venus was like the brightest thing right before dawn. 
And so you knew dawn was coming when you looked up and you saw Venus. And, and so they, they appropriated that concept of, you know, when you see the morning star, the dawn is coming. And so verse 20, we have one of the greatest scriptures on the divine nature of the word of God, I think, that exists. It says, above all, you know this. I saw it. I heard it. Prophecy confirmed it. But above all, know this about prophecy. No prophecy of scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, it says, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. All scripture is inspired by God. That word inspired there means God breathed. God breathed. The idea is as the writers were writing, it was God speaking and they were just copying it down like a scribe. That's the concept of this, that they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. The, the words they wrote down weren't their own words. The words that they wrote down weren't their own ideas. They were from God. And so he goes, no prophecy of scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation. That word interpretation there, it means from one's own analysis or one's own understanding. Another way to say this would be no prophecy ever came from the prophets themselves. It came from God. They didn't come up with their own ideas about what God might want to say. They didn't come up with their own thoughts about but what, how God wanted to speak to his people and write it down. They wrote what God told them to write. That's why it's true. That's why it's trustworthy. And so in verse 21, he goes on to say, because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That phrase carried along there, it's a nautical, uh, nautical term, sailing term, right? It's a sailing term that speaks of a ship being carried along when it hoists its sails and then those sails are filled with the wind and then it gets just the wind takes them. Right? That's the idea of being carried along. And so the idea is as the biblical authors hoisted their, their sails of faith, the Holy Spirit, the breath of God filled those sails and carried their writing to the very destination that God wanted. Yeah, using their personality and using their individual style of the author, right? That's why you, know, you read John's writings and they're stylistically different than Paul's writings. But the destination, the goal, the point, the theme, the truth was harmonious throughout all of it. Right? The Bible is 66 books by 40 authors. 40 authors who, who lived hundreds of miles apart geographically. Who wrote these different 66 books over the span of 1,500 plus years. And yet you put it all together, and from Genesis to Revelation, all of it is absolutely consistent in what it teaches and what it says. That's supernatural. Why? Because it was all inspired by and under the control of the Holy Spirit. Truth is a slippery word today. Definitions for truth, they get assigned to it that are contradictory and purely individual and without really any validation. Peter wanted us to know things. He wanted us to know the truth and to know it's true. And so he taught them truth that was both personally familiar to him, stood on his own exact personal experience of the truth of it, and was prophetically verifiable. And because of our own personal experiences, 
that we've experienced the truth of what the word says and because of the prophetic word of God that, that he's given to us, because the prophecies have proven, proven that it is trustworthy, because of all of that, we know our faith is real. We know our faith is real. We know that the word of God is true. So let's not be ashamed to proclaim it. Let's not be ashamed to stand for it. Let's not be ashamed to tell people it's true. Right, the word has a whole lot to say about your testimony, right? By the word of your testimony, by the blood of the lamb, like, look, Jesus saved me. This is what's happened in my life. Well, that's just, your, no, look, this is what the word says. Well, how do I know it's true? Well, let me show, it, it, it can't escape it. And this true word of God is life-changing. So let's let it change our lives. Let's be examples of the change so that others get to experience that change too as we get the opportunity to shine the light of the gospel to them, to introduce them to the God of all truth who is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, so much for who you are and what you've done. Lord, we thank you for, for this letter, God. We know as you were inspiring Peter to write, Lord, you had a desire that your people would know truth. And God, the consistency of the experience of people who have believed what your word says and applied it to their lives over the centuries, God, says a lot. But Lord, you didn't just leave us with a subjective evidence of, of what your word says. God, your word confirms itself to be true. And Lord, there is so much more than even we went over today archaeologically and prophetically that, that proves that the Bible is true above and beyond all other quote-unquote holy books. And so, Lord, I pray, God, that as we individually develop a passion to know this truth more and more, to, to read consistently, to read daily, to let the word of God saturate our souls, Lord, that we would be saturated with truth and that we would be people who shine truth into the world that we live in. And so, God, help us to walk with absolute full confidence in the power of Jesus Christ, that you change, that you heal, that, God, we would walk in absolute confidence and trust in the coming of Jesus Christ. We know you're coming back, God. We look forward to that. But, Lord, in the in-between of that, you came to this earth demonstrating such a great love for us to die for our sins that we would be able to know you, to know truth. And God, we thank you for that. And while we're praying with heads bowed and eyes closed, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you've never come to know truth, and God has been speaking to you this morning, if you're here in this room, I just want you to raise your hand right now and say, I want to receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior today. I need him. God bless you in the back. Anybody else? God is speaking to you this morning. The truth of who he is and what he did, what he's done for you, he has revealed it to your heart this morning. And you know you need that. just want you to raise your hand where you're seated. Say, yeah, I want to be saved. If you're online and you're watching, obviously I can't see you through the camera, but please let us know in chat. There should be an opportunity there, a button to click, or just type it into chat that I want to receive Jesus Christ this morning. And for those of you that are doing that, I want to pray a prayer with you right now. A simple prayer of just acknowledging who God is, acknowledging your faith, your belief that he is who he says he is, 
a repentance of the sin in your life and an acceptance of his sacrifice on your behalf. So say, Lord God, I believe in you. I believe the truth that you are God. I believe the truth that you came to this earth. I believe the truth that you died on the cross for my sins. I believe the truth that you rose from the dead on the third day. And I believe the truth that through faith in you, I can be saved. I put my faith in you this morning, God. Thank you for loving me so much that you would do this work for me, that you would accept me. Teach me truth, how to live for you in a false world. Help my life to be a light of the gospel and that others would come to know you that others would come to know the truth of you through a testimony of what you've done in my life. Thank you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, God bless you guys. If you prayed that prayer this morning, yeah. We have uh, what we call a new believers pack for you. It's just a a, a little packet of information to help you on, on this journey you've just begun. You know, you're, you're saved. The God of the universe died for you and you've received the, the complete forgiveness. You've received the salvation and it says that the Holy Spirit now dwells within you and, and, and your life is gonna be different and it's glorious. And we wanna help you on that, those, take those first few steps. And so we have this new believers packet we wanna give you if you're in this room. If you're online and you gave your life to the Lord Jesus this morning, just let us know. Um, uh, let the moderators know and then we'll private chat you to get your address and stuff and we'll gladly mail the new believers packet out to you as well. But guys, you know, we have truth in a world that is questioning truth constantly. We have the truth in a world that is trying to redefine what truth is. And it's the confusion, the deception that the devil is just aggressively fighting for to keep people from coming to know Jesus Christ, the truth. And so we have work to do to, to go out and live the life that just is glorifying God, obviously letting him work in and through us, and to share the hope that is within us with people. And I just pray that God would just fill you to overflowing with a passionate desire for the lost and a desire that they would know Jesus and you know, keep passing out tracts and taking advantage of opportunities like we have this weekend and others that are gonna come up to go out and to just proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ, amen? God bless you guys.